You're listening to the Speaking Tongues podcast. I'm your host, El Sharice. Each week, I sit down to a conversation with multilinguals where we discuss and celebrate language, life, and culture through our own perspectives. Episode 85, Speaking Sanskrit and Lithuanian. Hello, language lovers. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Speaking Tongues, the podcast in conversation with multilinguals. My guest today is Olga, a historical linguist and Sanskrit teacher who talks with us about two of her languages, Sanskrit and Lithuanian. I was so excited to talk with Olga because this is the first time on the show that we're really having a conversation about an ancient language. Olga tells us how she started on the path to studying ancient languages, starting from an opportunity at school. We talk about the Proto-Indo-European language and the methods that linguists are using towards its reconstruction. We talk about the differences between classical and Vedic Sanskrit, how the language changed through the Vedas, and how Sanskrit spread and gained influence through Buddhism and South Asian languages. In this conversation, Olga also explains why she would describe Sanskrit as a highly synthetic language And we also learn how Lithuanian plays a huge role in reconstruction of the Proto-Indo-European language. Thank you to Olga for taking us on this historical language journey and helping us to see the connections between these languages. To learn more about Olga's work, be sure to check the links to her website in the show notes. If you enjoy this episode of Speaking Tongues, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Speaking Tongues podcast on Apple Podcasts, and like and subscribe on YouTube so that other language lovers like ourselves can find the show. And if you've been a longtime listener of the show or even a recent listener, you can now support Speaking Tongues on buymeacoffee.com. Links to all platforms are in the show notes. Okay, let's chat. Welcome back to another episode of Speaking Tongues. I'm here today with Olga. How are you today, Olga? How else? Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I'm doing very well and I'm really looking forward to our talk today. Me too. I've been waiting all week to talk to you about your languages. And I know that you speak and study a multitude of languages, but we're only going to be focusing on two of them today. And that is Lithuanian and Sanskrit. I like to start each episode with the same question, and that is, what is your first language and which languages have you learned to speak? Yeah, um, I don't have one first language. I grew up bilingually and um, my mother and her family spoke Ukrainian to me and my father and his family members, all of them, they spoke Russian to me. So when I looked at my mother, I started the sentence in Ukrainian, and then if I would suddenly look at my father, I would keep talking in Russian. And there is one third language that was very important during my childhood. It it is called Rusin. And back in the day when I was a child, everybody referred to it as a dialect. Uh, And it was known for being the craziest dialect spoken in Ukraine. The one spoken in the mountainous region. I come from the Carpathian Mountains in the west of Ukraine. And it is an area 
where many borders come together, um, the Polish border, the Ukrainian border, the Hungarian, Slovakian and Romanian border. So many languages are mixed into this um, yeah, Rusin language. So when I grew up, I thought it was a dialect and there were some language activists who wrote poetry in Rusin and who fought for the acknowledgement of Rusin as an independent language. But it was not until I met someone else who was actually from Croatia, who also spoke Rusin, that I realized, well, it is a language and it is not a dialect because it is spoken so far away from Ukraine. So what have you learned to speak in addition to those three? I started learning English as a child. Uh, and then at some point, um, I knew I wanted to learn another language, but it was not so easy. In Ukraine in the 90s, there were no um, studying materials. And... It was very hard to find a teacher for any other foreign language. Um, it was even hard to find a teacher for English. But um, I first wanted to study French and my mother sent me to several uh, courses. But they were all boring and I didn't advance at all. <laughs> so at some point... Um, I found a suitable course. It was for university students and it was German language. And I started uh, learning German language, but I was in a teenage uh, age and and I didn't really want to attend the lessons. So I started skipping lessons and there was this embarrassing situation when I was walking um, down the street with my mother and we met my German teacher and she said, oh, well, uh, your daughter, she's so good at languages. She's so talented, but always ill. That's such a shame. And my mother <laughs> wondered, my daughter is never ill. She's actually very healthy. <laughs> my mother made a deal with me, which was the most amazing thing that she could have done. She said that if I keep uh, going to lessons and if I keep learning German, then I can go um, and live in Switzerland for a while. That's what happened. I went to Switzerland to study there. And, well, actually, I went to school there and I lived there for a year. And I didn't know that there was something like Swiss German before going to Switzerland. So I didn't learn how to speak Swiss German, but I can understand Swiss German. And afterwards, I moved to several different countries where I learned several different modern languages, so I can speak Russian, Ukrainian, Russian, uh, German, English fluently, and I have some knowledge of Swedish, uh, my Lithuanian is not too bad, and um, I can speak a little bit of Chinese. And I studied ancient languages, so I also learned several ancient languages. So how did you get into studying ancient languages? And which ones, and I guess which ones, um, which ones are you focusing on? Yes, um, good question. So I lived in Amsterdam for a while and I studied there and the study program kind of didn't lead me anywhere. So I wanted to change the program and I looked um, through all available study programs in Germany. And I found this one program called uh, Historical Linguistics. Well, the name was nothing special, 
but in the description it mentioned that you would have to learn at least three ancient languages, including Sanskrit, and that fascinated me a lot. Um, you would also have to choose a major, either uh, Germanic languages or um, you could also specialize in Indo-European languages. And the letter was, it sounded so exciting. I knew immediately <laughs> this is what I want to do. And um, there were many languages offered. So the courses that I took, I learned Latin, which was obligatory. Sanskrit was also obligatory. I did um, Old Persian, Avestan, Hittite, Hieroglyphic Luvian. I studied um, Akkadian, which is a non-Indo-European language. It was the uh, language spoken in Babylonia. I also learned um, Old High German and a little bit of Gothic and Old Church Slavonic and Old Lithuanian. Okay. This is so fascinating. When we're talking about Indo-European languages or Proto-Indo-European Proto languages, which languages are the ones that you mentioned? Are, are the, is that all of them? Are there more of them? So all the languages but Akkadian. Akkadian is non-Indo-European. All the other languages, they are Indo-European languages. That means they belong to one family of languages that we call uh, Indo-European. And these languages, they are all related, which means it's like with a family, you can trace them all back to the same ancestor. And this same ancestor is called uh, the Proto-Indo-European language. Oh, okay. So there is not not a pluralistic thing um, of Indo-European languages. It's just one uh, Proto-Indo-European language that was spoken maybe sometime between 3000 and 5000 before Christ. We cannot be sure about the exact date. And it was not just one year when it was spoken. And we cannot be sure because this language, it is not attested in any written records. So it is a purely theoretical construct, and mm. and we, we we call it a reconstructed language, meaning that we take every single daughter language, so we take all the ones that I mentioned, and some more, some more, you could take also um, Old English, and you could take Ancient Greek is very important for the reconstruction. Um, you could take uh, Tocharian, which is a the latest uh, discovered uh, Indo-European language that was spoken in uh, present-day China. And if you take the oldest stage of each of these and you compare them, then uh, you analyze those similarities and you come up with a system that would produce a logical common ancestor. Okay, that's really interesting. And I always wondered about how that happened specifically with, well, I can't think of a specific language that I had this thought about, but thinking about the way that ancient languages, you know, we don't know how they're spoken and we may not even know how they were written. So I never really understood how they could be reconstructed and how people could figure out 
you know, a language that hasn't been spoken in thousands of years. So you're saying that you take the most, like the oldest form of the language, and then you compare all of these languages together to figure out how this language was used and how it was constructed, right? Exactly. Exactly. And there are actually some indications of how a language was pronounced, even if we don't know for sure. But um, for instance, in Sanskrit, the uh, oldest texts that we have, the uh, Vedas, um, they are uh, composed, they are not prose, they are... um, there is some rhythm to them. They are metrical texts. And mm. um, if you have metrical texts, if you just think of a simple example, an end rhyme, then you know that uh, um, no matter how, how words are written, you expect them to rhyme. So um, even, even if words don't look the same, you can um, infer from the fact that they should rhyme how you have to pronounce them. But you can also, um, there is also one more aspect of Sanskrit, and that is that when it was finally written, it was written with a script called Devanagari script, and that mm-hmm. script is extremely precise at displaying the sound of the language. So it marks absolutely every single phonological peculiarity of the language that is relevant for linguists. With other languages, it doesn't work like that. Uh, uh, My favorite example is Old Persian. So Old Persian was written uh, with a version of cuneiform, which Mm. which, uh, um, was designed very quickly and it was an unfinished project. So, um, it lacks science for many things. So it has, for example, it's it's a different kind of script. It has a, um, each sign is a syllable and not one uh, sound as we have an alphabet. So mm-hmm. it has signs for each consonant that the language has with an inherent a, so ka, ba, ma, and so on, but. The signs with other vowels, Old Persian had also E and U, they are not there. So if you would write my name, Olga, you couldn't write an O, but that's not such a big problem. You would write O and A and U, I'm sorry, A and U. And then you couldn't, couldn't write a consonant cluster. So LG would not be, a, would not be possible. You would have to write right. La Ga. So Aulaga would be my name in Old Persian. I see. Oh, this is so fascinating. Um, let's talk about Sanskrit. Yeah. And I've heard, I know of Sanskrit. Um, and I hear people talk about Sanskrit to this day, but it's really old. So how old is it? This is a question that... That it can be answered in many ways. Uh, I don't really like to talk about languages having an age, since if you if you look at it from the historical perspective, they all come from the same ancestors. So 
um, saying that you know one language is older than the other and comparing their age is it's a little bit difficult. But okay. um, what what could be said about Sanskrit is that uh, it was similarly to Latin. It was codified. Um, the 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 a grammar was written for Sanskrit by a person called Panini, and this person lived in the sixth century BC. So the grammar of Sanskrit, of classical Sanskrit, it it stands, so to say, since then. And the way we learn it today, um, it can be we can be rather sure that that was also the state of the language in approximately six hundred BC. Okay, but Sanskrit is actually it appeared already older and. We distinguish between two kinds of Sanskrit, the Vedic Sanskrit and the classical Sanskrit. Okay, tell me about those. Tell me about the Vedic and the classical Sanskrit. And I guess what are some differences and if there's any difference in usage or, or the, the spread of one versus the other. Tell, tell us about that. So I will begin with Vedic Sanskrit because it is the older one. So it was uh, spoken prior to classical Sanskrit. And um, one thing is important. You shouldn't think of, of them as, a, as an offspring kind of relationship. So um, classical Sanskrit is not a direct consequence of, of change in Vedic Sanskrit. But okay. um, but they are definitely very related to each other. And Vedic Sanskrit, like the name already says, is the language of Vedas. And Veda is, uh, is the word for knowledge. And it was the ancient knowledge, the sacred ancient religious knowledge of uh, India. Okay. So... Um, there are four Vedas uh, that we know of that, that were transmitted uh, over a very long period of time. They were learned by heart and uh, written down much, much later. And they were composed uh, over time. So the first uh, um, Vedas were composed somewhere in the second millennium BC. And also throughout these texts, uh, throughout the four Vedas, you can see how the language changes. So they don't they don't really show a, a, a unified grammar system, but in some aspects mm. um, it differs compared to classical Sanskrit. And classical Sanskrit uh, it's a it's a much um, versatile language. It was used for very many different things. So all kinds of literature, you know, not only religious literature, but also, um, I mentioned the grammar book earlier that was lit written in classical Sanskrit, and um, there's a huge corpus of literature. There are there are poems, there are fables, there is there are religious texts, there are philosophical treatises. There is um, a lot about medicine and and so on and so on. So there is just about anything you can imagine. Um, you can read it in classical Sanskrit. And the differences between the two, one of the major differences is that the words in Vedic Sanskrit, 
they had free stress. So you could stress them, depending on the form of the word, You had the stress could change from one place to another. In classical st uh, uh, Sanskrit, this stress system is predictable. You don't have to learn it by heart. You can look at the word, and if you look at it, at the syllable structure and um, at the length and uh, of the vowels, then you will know where you should stress it. So that's okay. one of the differences. Okay. So you said that classical did not come from the Vedic. The, it's not a result of the, it's not like, um, uh, Vedic is not an ancestor of the classical Correct. necessarily. Okay. So the classical, like how did, how did the classical Sanskrit develop um, to be used outside of religious text and religious practice? Like, was it just common usage among people Um, using this language over time, or do do we know at all? Is there an answer to that? Um, I like to compare the situation to Latin in Europe because it is kind of similar. So classical Sanskrit, it, when it after it was codified, I, after the rules for it were written down, it already at that time it was um, language of scholars of uh, some kind of elite in the society but it was also cert most certainly a spoken language and like any spoken language it was not the same everywhere uh, so uh, depending on the village it would you would get a slightly different version of sanskrit but the fact that it, the rules for it could be written down and were written down you could teach it Uh, whenever and wherever. So you can teach today a very, very similar version of Sanskrit, no matter where you are. And it spread, it, it gained influence, perhaps because of this uh, status of being codified, and because, of course, uh, of the spread of the religion. So spread of Buddhism, and also uh, the spread of the Buddhistic texts, uh, Mm. resulted in the spread of the language. So if you look at modern-day um, South um, Asian languages, they will have lots of uh, Sanskrit words. And this is uh, the result of this scholarly status of Sanskrit. Well, similar to Latin, mm. if you look uh, at English verbs, you know, 80% of English verbs come from Latin and no matter which European language you learn, there are lots and lots of Latin words. So learning right. Latin is very, very useful um, because it makes you understand much more of the world, of the European world. And it's the same with Sanskrit in India and uh, South Asia. Oh, so interesting. Okay. I love this. I love this so far. Okay. With Sanskrit, let's talk about a bit of the structure and I guess the the, the grammar of the language. Um, you know, how is it constructed? How how do we make sentences? How do we how do we form sentences? Um, how do we where you know how do we pronounce vowels? I know vowels are are important in some languages. Um, tell us all about these technical things, just very very basically. Yeah. So, 
With vowels, there is this basic distinction between long vowels and short vowels that is very important. So depending on if you pronounce a vowel shortly or longly, the meaning changes. That's one of the very important things. And then another peculiarity of Sanskrit uh, uh, sounds uh, um, that is connected to the grammar of Panini is that in our alphabet, for instance, the sounds, they're just in a total disorder. There is no logic to it. But if you look at the writing system, Devanagari, that is used for Sanskrit, that was defined also as, as a base for um, writing Sanskrit by Panini. I mean, you can write Sanskrit in any writing system, but you usually do it in Devanagari. And it has profound logic to it. Um, the analysis of phonetics is really thorough and um, and also the analysis of grammar, the structure of the language, is remarkable. It took the Europeans uh, until the 18th, 19th century to lay the same foundations that Panini laid in his grammar. And the wow. grammar, yeah, that's very, very impressive. And yeah. the, grammar, um, the grammar is quite complex. So... In its essence, Sanskrit is a highly synthetic language. That means that you make up grammatical relations and you convey grammatical information by changing the ending of the word. And one ending doesn't just have one meaning, but one ending of the word can be defined um, by very many parameters. So... For instance, uh, an ending of a substantive or another nominal form or an adjective, it will be defined by the parameter uh, gender. So it's like in English, uh, a grammatical gender um, that you have to think about. And uh, But it's much more important in Sanskrit. And if you say a word, a noun and an adjective, then the adjective also has to have the same grammatical gender as the noun. And there are three of those grammatical genders, masculine, neuter, and uh, feminine. And you also have the dimension number. So you know singular and plural from uh, uh, most of the European languages. But there is also another category called dual. And it's you use that when you're talking about two things. So um, if you are talking about you and me, uh, the verb has to stand in dual. And mm -hmm. this 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 can be explained by the fact this this is an ancient uh, thing that Proto-Indo-European also had dual and um, and it can be explained by the fact that you know we humans we like to talk about ourselves and if you if you look at ourselves then you realize that we have quite a few things that are two of. So we have two eyes and we have two ears and we have two hands and two <laughs> arms and so on. So this is um, the most likely explanation why you would talk about um, two things in the grammatical sense. And then you're still not done. Um, you still have to have a grammatical case. And there are eight of these. So if you just think about this table of forms, table of endings that you have to learn for Sanskrit, it's... Mm -hmm. um, it's three times eight, so it's 24 endings 
for one stem and I will not go into that. I will not explain uh, what a stem is because it's a little bit too abstract, but there are very, very many stems. So it's not just one paradigm of those 24 endings. You have to learn there, there is an A stem and the long A stem and uh, an N stem and other consonantal stems and an E stem and the long U stem and so on and so on. So, and that's just for nouns. And then uh, we haven't even started talking about verbs and participles, and those are way more complicated. <laughs> um, another fairly simple thing about Sanskrit, and it's a central, uh, it's very, very central um, to learning this language. It is something which is called Sandhi, and it is not just present in Sanskrit, but uh, it is present in every single language, so it is the idea that one word changes depending on what the next word is. So you have that in English if you think about indefinite articles. So you have an A, but you also have a version of it as an N. It can be realized as N uh, if right. the next word starts with a vowel. So you say a pear, but you say an apple. And Sanskrit has such differences all over the place. So if you want okay. to connect two words, you, you're bound to have to change the, the each of them, <laughs> almost. <laughs> and that makes it difficult. It makes it difficult reading uh, Sanskrit because you kind of first, to ha uh, first have to decipher what mm -hmm. what is the actual ending, since right. you would write exactly how you speak. Do you have any quick examples of some of the grammatical concepts that you were you were explaining to us just so we can kind of hear maybe the differences between a few things so if you want something very very simple very simple mm. in english you have to always say explicitly who is responsible for the action. So if you say, I carry, you have to say I, otherwise you don't know who is carrying. Right. And in Sanskrit, you can omit the pronoun because the verb has the information about the person who is carrying coded in the ending. So I carry in Sanskrit would be parami. And if you would want to say you carry, in English you have to say explicitly you, but carry doesn't change at all. In Sanskrit you would say bharasi. And it's the same word bhar, but you change the ending. And the information about the rest is coded. So returning to your uh, original question, how do you construct sentences in Sanskrit? You have a fairly free word order. So... You have a tendency of putting subject and then uh, putting the object and verb in the end of the sentence, but it's not obligatory, and you you can have a free order and you will be perfectly understood because the relations between words they are expressed not through individual words but um, in the ending they are encoded inside. Okay. So, so that's a very, very simple example. Okay. Yeah, no, that I think that's helpful to to hear and to just kind of understand the way that works. 
um, you know, for people who are listening and not from like, I'm not familiar with Sanskrit at all. So this is like, I'm at starting at zero <laughs> today. Um, I want to, I want to jump to Lithuanian and I read this quote on Wikipedia and it was saying that Lithuanian is the most conservative of Indo-European languages. And the quote that I saw said, Lithuanian is conservative in some aspects of its grammar and phonology, retaining archaic features otherwise found only in ancient languages such as Sanskrit, particularly in its early form, Vedic Sanskrit. Um, for this reason, it's an important source for the reconstruction of Proto-Indo-European language. We talked about that um, despite its late attestation. Um, I would love to hear how these two have similarities, um, Sanskrit and Lithuanian, and um, how is it used in, re in reconstruction? Like what, what is it about um, Lithuanian that has helped in particularly, specifically in this re reconstruction? So one of the things that I talked about was the case endings. You know, the richness of case endings in uh, Sanskrit. This is also the case in Lithuanian. If you would uh, um, look at the grammatical system of Lithuanian um, and compare it with Sanskrit, there are very many similarities. And the first one, uh, already just having those categories, you know, having, for instance, a vocative case. Um, this is a special ending that uh, you would use when you address someone. So just to give you an example, um, such name is Vitotas. It's a very, very typical Lithuanian name. And um, if you would want to talk to Vitotas, then you would not say Vitotas, hey Vitotas, but you would say Vitotai. And that's quite crazy for us. And you would mm. have to change, even though it's a proper name, you would, ch you would have to change it through all the cases. And there are very many. Mm. And uh, um, vocative cases is a special thing in, in Lithuanian. And there are very many different endings. So that's uh, uh, one of these um, grammatical features that Lithuanian has retained, whereas uh, very many, almost all other Indo-European languages have lost. And if okay. you look throughout the Indo-European languages, um, English doesn't need the concept of case at all. It's fine uh, just with the case of subject, uh, direct object and indirect object. If you learn German, then you know you have four cases there, nominative, genitive, dative and accusative. And um, if you learn Latin, you know there is one more on top. You have to learn what ablative is and what are the different functions. So in Lithuanian, you have uh, uh, the richness of cases. You do not have ablative, but apart from that, you have all of the cases that uh, were present in Proto-Indo-European. And um, if you go to Lithuania, people mistakenly call it the most ancient language or the oldest language in the world, and they love comparing it to Sanskrit. So I'm glad you didn't make that mistake. So the quote uh, that uh, you copied there from Wikipedia, it's very accurate. So it is an archaic language. It has an archaic grammar system. And the second part of the quote, you know, the late attestation is very important. 
So at the beginning of our talk, I uh, said that we'd like to take always the oldest stage of the language for the reconstruction, because we can be most sure that this is as close as we get to the real ancient language. And we don't like to take modern English because so many changes happened on on the way from the Proto-Indo-European to modern-day English. But if you take Lithuanian, Lithuanian had a tough history because Lithuania as a country, as a nation, it's not that old. It was part of Germany and Russia and, and Poland and and it it's, it has very complicated history and politically um, many countries had the agenda of suppressing the language and and the, and it was forbidden to publish in lithuanian for instance and um, many lithuanians fled to the s because uh, because of this oppressive um, state policy but um, if we take a few a few centuries if you will look few centuries back when when Lithuanian started to be uh, to, to be written when it was uh, when when the first books were published um those first books they were uh, religious books they were catechism and uh, uh, prayers and um, and Lithuania was the last pagan country of Europe this is something also one special thing about Lithuania when oh, wow. everyone was already Christianized. Um, Lithuania was still a pagan country, and um, yeah, books books back in the day they were expensive to print, and um, normal people could not afford that. Of course, uh, the church could. So when um, af- after uh, Lithuania became Christianized. Uh, um, First Lithuanian books appeared, started appearing in the 16th, 17th century, and that's very, very late if you compare it to uh, Hittite, which is the first attested Indo-European language, and it is attested mm. in second millennium before Christ. And you take, right. you know, three millennia between these two languages, so you think, well, what do we believe? What is more original? What is what is more ancient, then you wouldn't mm-hmm. expect Lithuanian to be a good language to use for, um, for, for your reconstructions. But for some reason, Lithuanian, Lithuanians even kept the free, the sort of free roaming, wandering accent, uh, which is one of the uh, major challenges of learning Lithuanian. Uh, you cannot be sure where to stress it so mm. uh, depending on the case depending on the form the grammatical form um, that uh, uh, you take you have to stress the word elsewhere so uh, just uh, uh, f- just to give you an example a female uh, Lithuanian name Oshra um, you would have to stress it Oshra if you um, if you're using it in vocative case and but you would have to stress it again on the ending oshros if you would use it in the genitive case and so on and there are some words with a fixed stress but mm-hmm. otherwise there are many stress paradigms that 
um, that are present in modern day in Lithuanian. And although they are not inherited, the stress patterns have changed. But um, the fact that you still have the stress patterns, um, it, that allows you to reconstruct uh, something that, that is material to work with, um, as opposed to Germanic languages that had their fa uh, stress fixed on the first syllable of the word uh, before they split into several groups. So when when the, all the Germanic languages were still the, at the Proto-Germanic stage, at the yeah we don't know about that language exactly, but we know that all the words were stressed at the beginning on the first syllable. And that in turn also led to to the laziness of pronunciation of the last syllables. So whenever you put more stress at the beginning, you don't pronounce properly the ending of the word, and it tends to disappear over time. Yeah. So that's why uh, it's one of the explanations why the Germanic languages lost this case system, this this syntactic marking of endings. Aside from the, the stress and the pronunciation in modern Lithuanian, um, how is it different from old Lithuanian? It's not really that much different. So um, the main problem is that there was no um, unified orthography. You know, like today we have an, uh, we have institutions that tell you how to write words and then you go to school and then you learn how to write properly. Orthography is a big thing, especially for an English speaker. You know how difficult it is to learn how to write in English. So oh, that, yeah. Yeah, that didn't exist uh, back in the day when they started printing Lithuanian language. And the language was not that different, but the fact that there was no real unified system of orthography. They tried to adhere to some rules of other languages. And it was also very often German speakers who would print or who would write uh, Lithuanian or Polish speakers or Russian mm. speakers. And they were all influenced also by Lithuanian, which was a major, very important language of that time. So... If you if you read Old Lithuanian, um, if you would write it very close to modern day uh, orthography, then it's not even that hard to understand. If you're a linguist, you will have you will have no problem understanding it. Uh, but it's 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 the knowledge of of the peculiar peculiarities of orthography of the German language of the. Yeah, and I guess also knowing a little bit of German and Polish and and Russian is a prerequisite for studying Lithuanian, <laughs> Old Lithuanian. Mm. And if you want a grammatical feature that has changed, that is not present uh, so much in uh, modern day Lithuanian, although although there are some rests of it, um, there there are so called uh, secondary cases that were um, imported. Uh, from uh, Finnish language, which mm. is just oh. across the sea. And mm. there were cases, there were four cases uh, um, that had to do something with the location. So uh, Lithuanian has a locative case, which is inherited from the Proto-Indo-European, and you use it when you talk um, when you talk about uh, uh, where you are. So I'm currently at university, and the Lithuanian word for university is universitatas, 
And if you say you are at university, you change the as ending to e, universite te. You also change the stress position uh, to the last syllable. But um, so Lithuanian had the, um, those secondary, um, yeah, uralic cases that dropped again, and you used them for saying, um, for talking more precisely about location. Well, these are a lot of cases, Olga. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Don't be sorry. But that's as um, complicated as it gets. That's why yeah. these two languages, you know, they are both challenging, but really worthwhile studying. After mm -hmm. that, thinking about Latin or any other Proto-Indo-European language, you just think, oh, well, no problem. No problem. Which did you study first? Did you study Sanskrit first or yeah. Lithuanian first? Sanskrit first, came first? Yeah, and that was a great okay. idea. I studied it before any other ancient language and before many modern languages. And apart from Chinese, which is a great challenge, especially because of the writing system, all the others have been much easier. And it was like traveling with wind coming from the back. <laughs> it, 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 it was nice and people yeah. who complained about latin they scared me a little bit and i was i must admit i i didn't i didn't look forward to learning latin too much i waited until the end of my studies it was obligatory to for everyone in german a german university to to have done latin and apart from if you study mathematics then it's okay But okay. for every single other subject, you have to have done Latin uh, before you can graduate. So I was afraid. But then when I looked at the grammar after having studied Sanskrit, well, then it was easy. I feel like you unlocked a cheat code to language study. Like Sanskrit should be the language that we touch first because it's going to open so many doors to understanding all these other languages and languages that have begotten other languages too. It's like the master, it's like the master language key, it sounds like. Well, definitely for the proto, uh, for, for the Indo-European languages, definitely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and uh, so, um, also very many words uh, in um, East Asian languages and South Asian languages are from Sanskrit. So it's not just grammar, I guess. Right. It's also useful for that. Yeah, it's 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 why it has a wide reach. With all of the modern languages that sh that share the history of this Proto-Indo-European language, do you notice any, or have you noticed or encountered any cultural elements that are maybe shared among the regions where? these languages are spoken today or are there any proto-indo-european customs culture cultural elements that still survive today and can be seen in the in the area that that you know this language touched at one point um yes um actually the Our mission, you know, of of proto of, of, of finding the Proto-Indo-European homeland has something to do with one of the methods how you could find the Proto-Indo-European homeland. You know, the place where our ancestors ancestors came from. Um, 
One of the methods is to look at the shared vocabularies. So there are many scientists, um, many linguists attempting to to get uh, to the back to the roots of this shared vocabulary. And if you look at what uh, you know exactly which words are attested throughout as many in the European languages as possible, then uh, uh, horse is definitely uh, a very central figure, not only as a as a way of transport, but also in as as a sacrificial animal, and hmm. um, other animals. The cow, the cow was, uh, um, and in India still is. Uh, um, worshipped as uh, as an animal and the cow was um, it, it is also one of those words that you can find in um, in uh, very many in the european languages and there are other animals so domestication of animals was something something known to the indo-europeans and um, another sphere was fighting so probably one is one of the best attested verbs is guhen, uh, Proto-Indo-European word guhen, which meant uh, to strike uh, or to kill. Um, not so nice of our ancestors, I must say, but um, <laughs> um, maybe that is one of the explanations why Indo-European languages are spread all over the world, because uh, I don't think that our ancestors were that nice uh, uh, to, you know, to who they encountered. Mm. Um, there are very many different words for fighting and striking and beating and, uh, yeah, vindicating. Vi- violent and, words, yeah. Indeed, indeed. And um, just so that we don't finish on the violent note, um Something that I personally find very interesting are plants. So the botanical world. It can also indicate uh, more precisely uh, where where the Proto-Indo-European homeland might have been. But um, because you can, of course, look at the different plants. And if you, for example, know that there was a Proto-Indo-European word for birch, for birch tree, and you look at the climate zones where birches um, grow, uh, you immediately know, okay, our ancestors are not from the equatorial zone or not from a tropical zone, but they came somewhere from the north. And um, to our best knowledge, uh, and um, the, the newly reported studies in genetics and DNA research, um, and the comparative linguistics and everything that we know, um, the most likely Indo-European homeland was somewhere in the step between, um, yeah, in in the eastern Ukraine and western Russia, between uh, um, the Caspian and the Black Sea, so the part a bit just a bit north of that uh, land between the Caspian and the Black Sea. Just compared f- from if you take all the herding animals that could survive well there and and the plants that can be reconstructed, and of course the kinship terms they are very well reconstructable huh how interesting what are the kinship terms uh, family family terms for instance oh. uh, uh, a cool thing you know the word daughter 
it's it's a mess of spelling uh, in English. You really don't know what to do. But if you know the Sanskrit word for daughter, which is duhitara, and if you look if you look at the English spelling, then you will see the the common past there, right? It's not the yes. donkeys, but. I had, yeah, I th- like the third time I ran it through my brain, I said, okay, Tuhitara yeah. is the, okay, wow, this is getting more interesting by the minute, Olga. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for this conversation. I want you to please tell us about the work that you're doing and tell tell us about Idiomarium and uh, what you do with the platform and how people can get in touch with you. Um, yeah, so um, actually I work at university. That's uh, my primary um, job. But uh, in my free time, I like to learn more uh, about languages and not just ancient languages, but also modern languages and artificial languages. Um, and I sort of collect these languages in um, something that I called Idiomarium. And you can find um, posters about um, different languages of the world, uh, modern, ancient, artificial ones. And um, if you're interested in um, knowing more about them, you can uh, gladly contact uh, me. I also offer a language uh, consultancy and private tutoring for um, ancient languages, I designed um, a course uh, where I teach a little bit about the historical background, the migrations, the um, grammatical system, but also the literary and cultural tradition of each of the uh, groups of Indo-European languages. So there is a lecture on Baltic languages and on Slavic languages and Latin and uh, um, Indo-Aryan languages, that's the group where Sanskrit belongs, uh, um, and so on and so on. So you can get in touch with me by um, uh, finding me online. Olga, Olina, you're bound to find me. I don't think there are many people uh, who are called like that who do ancient (laughs) languages. (laughs) Okay, great. I will add your links and your contacts into the show notes for this episode so that anyone listening, they want to get in touch, they can just click and reach you right away. Thank you. Thank you so much. I like to end each episode on the same question. And that is, do you have any jokes, swear words, tongue twisters, slang words, idioms, or words of advice in Sanskrit or Lithuanian or because you speak so many languages. I'm gonna let you choose whichever one comes to mind, whichever one you wanna share. So I will pick Lithuanian just because it's a it's an alive language. That's, that's one of the reasons I, I really like to learn uh, modern languages aside from all the ancient ones because you can actually order yourself a beer in this language. <laughs> but... Uh, um, uh, you know about the swear words uh, uh, that's difficult because uh, uh, all Lithuanians swear in Russian. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't really have bad words in Lithuanian. They all they're all taken from Russian. But uh, um one funny thing, um the 
the traditional dish, the national dish of uh, um, Lithuania is called Cipelinai. And Cipelinai. yeah, Cipelinai. And Cipelinai, um, it kind of sounds like Zeppelins, doesn't it? Yeah. And it is Zeppelins. It's edible Zeppelins. So, so <laughs> if you if you want to uh, Google it, and uh, um, they um, you write it with a C at the beginning, so Zeppelinai, and um, those are um, well, those are Zeppelin formed. Um, yeah, it's meat stuffed inside of uh, dough, which is made from potatoes. So it's, you mm-hmm. first uh, make mashed potatoes and then you add some flour to that and then um, and then you um, put some meat inside of this mass, mass and and you form zeppelins out of it. Okay. Zeppelini. Mm-hmm. Correct. Okay. Perfect. Olga, thank you so much again. Well, for... thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. I've really enjoyed it. And before I let you go, do not think about this so hard, even though you have so many languages to choose from. But in this situation where we've been chatting and we've been talking for some time, what would be, in which language, what would be the best way to say goodbye? Well, right now I live in Swedish, uh, in Sweden, so it's uh, hey do. Hey do? Hey do. Hey do? Yeah, hey do. Well, thank you again, Olga. Hey do. And I will be talking to you soon. Yes, thank you so much once again. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>